welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Beth Hale and I'm a senior associate in the team. I have with me Parvis Ghani, an employment partner, and today we're going to look at Cheapy and tackle a few of the trickier issues it presents in practice. In particular, we're going to focus on the following five questions, which in our experience are often asked by clients. Firstly, when does Cheapy apply? Secondly, who transfers? Thirdly, what happens to post-termination restrictive covenants on a Cheapy transfer and how can employers protect themselves? Fourthly, can you change terms and conditions after a Cheapy transfer and if so, how? And finally, are there any ways of avoiding Cheapy applying altogether? Before we start, it's probably helpful to run through the very basics of Cheapy just by way of reminder. So Cheapy stands for the Transfer of Undertakings Protection of Employment Regulations 2006 and it operates to protect employees on the sale or the transfer of a business or whether there's a service provision change such as an outsourcing. The basic principle which underpins Cheapy is that the transferee, so the purchaser or a new service provider, is obliged to step into the shoes of the transferor in almost all respects. Employees transfer on their existing terms and conditions and anything done or not done by the transferor is treated as having been done by the transferee employer. Cheapy imposes restrictions on a transferee employer's ability to amend terms and conditions and to dismiss employees and it also gives rise to information and consultation obligations. So, Parvis, the first question for parties to a transaction to consider is whether Cheapy applies at all. Can you just run us through some of the key considerations to determine whether Cheapy applies to a particular transaction? Thanks, Beth. I'm going to make four points on this. The first point is that it's vital to look at what is actually transferring. In order for Cheapy to apply, there must be an identifiable business or set of services which is capable of transferring. The sale of a set of unconnected assets will not trigger Cheapy, and nor will the transfer of a contract where workers are allocated to the contract on an ad hoc basis rather than forming an identifiable and organised group. Now, Cheapy will apply where there is a distinct business being sold or an identifiable group of people people carrying out a particular contract. There will, of course, be grey areas in between. The second point is, it's important to consider who the parties are to a potential transfer. Now, in order for there to be a cheapy transfer, there must be an identifiable transferor and a transferee. So if, for example, a set of services is carried out by a subcontractor and the same subcontractor will carry out the services after the transfer, cheapy will not apply. Similarly, if there is a transfer to multiple transferees, cheapy may not apply, particularly if the business or service is so fragmented such that it loses its identity altogether. Now this brings me on to the third point. Consider what will happen after the transfer. Will the business or service look similar? A transferring business must retain its identity after the transfer in order for Cheapy to apply. And where there is a service provision change, the activities carried out after the transfer must be sufficiently similar. Now, as a general rule of thumb, if the situation post-completion looks significantly different to what went before, there is a good chance that Cheapy won't apply. Now, the fourth and final point is that it's worth reminding listeners that whilst Cheapy generally does not apply where there is a sale of the shares in a company... It shouldn't be totally ignored in those circumstances. Now, Cheapy may, for example, apply to a pre-transaction or post-completion reorganisation, or if the target company is to be absorbed into the purchaser's organisation. The key message is don't assume that Cheapy doesn't apply just because it's a share sale. Now, once you've determined whether there is a Cheapy transfer at all, the next stage is to consider who will actually transfer. So let's have a look at how you work out who might transfer. Now, in principle, the answer to this question is pretty straightforward. Anyone who is employed by the transfer 
transferor and is assigned to the transferring business or the services will transfer. In practice, obviously, it's slightly more complex. Now I'm going to run through some key things to think about to determine who will transfer. Firstly, the term assigned is not defined in the regulations, but case law has established a number of factors to take into account. The main ones being the percentage of time spent, the value of work done and the location of the individual and whether or not the assignment is temporary. In order to carry out an accurate assessment of this, you'd need to carry out a really detailed analysis in relation to each individual employee. Whether or not you have the time to do such an analysis, it's really useful to ensure that the parties to a transaction agree to a list of transferring employees wherever possible to limit the scope for disputes at a later stage. Secondly, bear in mind that cheaping may well apply to workers as well as employees, and this can include members of an LLP. This hasn't yet been fully tested, but the definition of employee in cheapy is fairly broad, and while self-employed contractors are expressly excluded, the position in relation to workers is not so clear-cut. This issue is likely to become far more relevant in light of the recent and ongoing increase in litigation focusing on employment status. Thirdly, consider whether a particular individual is actually assigned immediately before the transfer as is required under cheapy. Employees who are absent on maternity leave will remain assigned for these purposes, but those who are on prolonged sick leave may not be, depending on their individual circumstances. Likewise, consider the position of those who've been seconded to or from the transferring group. Fourthly, and finally, remember that individuals have the right to object to a cheapy transfer. If an employee objects, then his or her employment terminates at the moment of the transfer, and none of the liabilities in relation to his or her employment transfer. Objections are relatively rare, largely because someone who objects to a transfer is not entitled to any statutory or contractual compensation on termination. However, employees can use an objection strategically, and that brings us on to our next tricky issue. So, Parvis, what happens to post-termination restrictive covenants on a cheapy transfer, and how can the purchasers of a business protect themselves? I think this is one of the trickiest areas of cheapy, particularly where employees are vital to the value of a business. Now, in theory, restrictive covenants transfer over along with all the other terms and conditions of employment. However, there are two key issues with this. Number one, the covenants will be interpreted in accordance with its meaning as at the time the contract was entered into. Now, this is problematic because it means that all references to the company or the employer to refer to the transferor company rather than the transferee. Number two, there is the issue which you referred to earlier of employees using an objection to a UP transfer strategically. Now, where an employee objects to a transfer, his or her contract will not transfer to the transferee and the transferee will therefore not be able to enforce any restrictive covenants in the contract. Where there are particular employees who are key to the business being purchased, this issue can be fundamental to the success of a transaction. And there are a number of ways in which employers can seek to deal with it. So I'm just going to run through these. Now, number one, the parties could make a deal conditional upon certain key employees not objecting to the transfer, or there could be a mechanism for changing the purchase price where objections are made. Number two, the transferor could assign the benefit of restricted covenants to the transferee by way of a deed of assignment. The third and final point is that the transferee employer could either ask key employees to agree to amend the restricted covenants in their contracts or terminate their employment and enter into entirely new contracts. Now, both approaches would generally involve some payment in consideration of the new covenants or the new contract. Thanks, Parvis. So you mentioned the restrictions on changing terms and conditions of employment, and this is another area on which we receive a lot of queries from clients. The basic position is that any change to an employee's contract is void if the sole or the principal reason for the change is a cheaper transfer, even if that change is beneficial to the employee, even if the employee has agreed to the change, and even if the employer has made a payment in exchange for making that change. So just to remember, if the change is unrelated to the transfer, then it is permitted. But if the sole or principal reason for the change is a transfer, then the change is void. There are two key exceptions to this basic rule. The first is where a change is made for what is known as an ETO reason, and that is an economic, technical or organisational reason entailing changes in the workforce. In practice, this exception is very narrowly applied other than in relation to a change 
change in location, which Parvis is going to deal with later. The second is whether terms of the contract permit the employer to make the particular change. This only really applies where a clause in a contract expressly allows an employer to make unilateral changes to an employment contract, which is not common, and even where it does exist, such a power would need to be exercised appropriately. So there are various ways in which an employer can seek to make changes to contracts. So firstly, if a transferee employer wants to change a small number of contracts for key senior employees, for example, as you've already discussed, Parvis, to introduce new restrictive covenants, it's clear that simply getting those employees to sign up to new covenants, even where substantial payment is made for them to do so, is extremely risky. In two cases involving bankers who were paid significant sums to sign up to new covenants, the courts held that the covenants were void and that the payments didn't have to be repaid. An alternative is to terminate the employment of the individuals and then to re-engage them on entirely new terms. Unless the employees will agree to the termination, that dismissal will almost certainly be automatically unfair because of the link to the cheapy transfer. However, if the employees are being offered a new contract immediately, then their losses will be limited and a claim is unlikely. In addition, one option is to enter into a settlement agreement with those employees. This is obviously more complicated as the individual has to take independent legal advice, but it does close off some of the risks of a claim. Now, both of these methods are commonly used but have not been properly tested by a court and they only really work with a small number of employees who are prepared to agree to the changes rather than for a whole workforce. So secondly, where the termination and re-engagement approach is not practical, employers can consider the following. So firstly, if changes are being rolled out to the whole workforce, including the existing employees as well as those who have transferred, then it's harder to argue that those changes are linked to the transfer. Secondly, consider linking the changes to a concrete event other than the transfer, such as the end of the financial year or a pay review, to remove that link. Thirdly, consider making receipt of some beneficial change, such as a pay rise or improved benefits, subject to the acceptance of detrimental changes, or even providing that additional benefits must be repaid if the employees seek to take the benefit of their old terms and conditions. This approach is pretty aggressive and it may not work in practice, but it may have at least some deterrent effect. Finally, consider whether you can wait before making the changes. Although there's no time after which it is safe to make a contractual change, the longer the distance from a transfer, the easier it is to argue that the change is unrelated to that transfer. Now, Pavis, I know there has been a recent case on change in location following a cheapy transfer. Could you summarise that case and its practical implications? So a change in workplace is expressly identified as an ETO reason, and that does allow employers to move employees where the business is going to be relocated following a transfer. Now, however, the case of Zeb and Xerox demonstrated that it is up to the employer whether or not to impose such a change and an employee cannot unilaterally insist that their workplace is changed. So in this case, the business Mr Zeb worked for was relocated to the Philippines and Tupi applied to the transfer. Now all the employees except for Mr Zeb took redundancy packages and left However, Mr. Zeb insisted that he wanted to relocate to the Philippines on his existing UK terms and conditions. Now, the tribunal held that this option was not open to him, whilst it was open to the employer to impose the change in location, and this constituted an ETO reason allowing a change to be made, it was not obliged to do so and could instead treat Mr. Zeb as redundant as his workplace was closing. So this is a helpful decision for employers who may not always want to absorb transferring employees into their existing workforce and may prefer to make redundancies. So the final question we're going to consider is whether there are any ways of avoiding the application of Chupi to a particular transaction. So Beth, the first thing to say here is that strictly speaking, it's not possible to contract out of Chupi and any attempt to do so could be void. Now having said that, if 
both parties are agreed that they do not want employees to transfer, there are ways of seeking to ensure that they do not do so. Now, firstly, the transfer employer could dismiss employees in advance of the transaction, ensuring that they will all sign up to settlement agreements. Ideally, the transferee employer would also be a party to those agreements to protect all parties against claims. Now, secondly, it could be a precondition of completion of a transaction that all employees are moved elsewhere within the organisation in advance so that they are not assigned to the transferring business. Now, thirdly, in an outsourcing, provisions can be included in the contract requiring the service provider to organise its staff in such a way as to ensure that no one is assigned to the particular contract. So, for example, by ensuring that all staff work on numerous contracts and are not dedicated to one particular client. It's important that both parties are clear that this is realistic and actually desirable before agreeing to this. Finally, one way of mitigating the impact of Tupi, so just to be clear, this would not avoid its application but mitigate the potential cost that Tupi could impose on the parties, is to include indemnity in, say, your outsourcing contract or the sale and purchase agreement, which would cover any losses that may arise as a result of inheriting transferring employees under TUPI. And there are various types of indemnities that could be included, which is outside the scope of this podcast, but certainly it's something which is quite common and can be negotiated on a commercial basis. Thanks, Parvis, and thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud or on the Stevenson Harwood website. (music) 